In the last four weeks, um, we've been looking at the life of a man named Gideon who was called by God to act as a tool for God to deliver God's people from uh, idol worship of Baal, to deliver them from the oppression of this Midianite army that came in every year like a, like a swarm of locusts to devour all of their resources. And so um, that's what we've done the last three weeks. We're just going to pick that up today in Judges chapter 8. So um, we've just come through a, a period with Gideon where we've seen that Gideon hasn't always been confident in God's uh, call or God's instructions. Sometimes he tests God. Um, but he and God's people have remained faithful through everything God has called them to do. And as we look at Judges 8 today, we're going to see faithfulness turn to unfaithfulness, both for Gideon and God's people. And we're going to see unity turn into division as we see uh, Gideon and God's people pursuing um, not God's glory, but zealously pursuing pride fear, revenge, and ultimately they end up pursuing their own failure. And so that's uh, what we're going to do today. This is a big chapter, uh, a lot of verses, so we're going to break it up into four parts, four episodes. So start off here with part one, call it Zealous uh, Pride, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I'll read and, and we'll get to work. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this you've done to us not to call us when you went to fight with Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abizar? God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison to you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said this. So to give you a little bit of background... The end of chapter 7, um, as uh, Gideon and his 300 men had completely decimated an army of over 130,000 people with trumpets and torches. Pretty cool story. You can uh, read a, or uh, hear a sermon from last week on that. Um, as, as that army is retreating, Gideon had asked the tribe of Ephraim to come and step in and help clean up some of the areas that Midian was retreating from hey, I just need your help a little bit. Can you do this for me? And Ephraim, in chapter 7, had responded faithfully. Yes, we'll do that. They had wiped out Midian as they were retreating. And they even, uh, you know, got a couple of princes, right? Uday and Kuse Hussein, right? They got those guys. And um, they've, uh, they've captured them. And, and they bring their heads to Gideon as a prize. Look what we did. We did it. And immediately... They start complaining to Gideon, why did you not consult us before going and starting this war? And what they're really doing, I mean, gosh, God has done an amazing victory. 300 people knocked out 120,000, and all they can do is complain about it, that they weren't more personally involved. They're saying, hey, we're Ephraim. We're the tribe that brought you Joshua. We're a wealthy tribe. You don't start something until you talk to us first. Well, the problem is, is that God hadn't called them. God called Gideon to fulfill this particular mission. So it's interesting because they weren't called to lead. They, they weren't even consulted by Gideon because the reality is they were more zealous for their own pride 
and their own sense of worth than they were for God's glory and God's mission. And even if they had been uh, consulted or had been given some authority, um, it probably wouldn't have gone very well since they were so prideful. The uh, Bible commentator George Schwab says it this way, when, when God starts moving, there are those who complain they're left behind and left out. But yet, if they were allowed to participate, they would surely undermine the cause. See, this is an important lesson for us as, as a collection of God's people. Because we see here in this short episode that individual pride hampers the unity of God's people and ultimately holds back the mission and the effectiveness and vitality of churches to spread the gospel. What Ephraim's pride is, is it's destructive and it's sinful. And and if left unchecked, it can actually have um, just a, a very killing effect. We see this all the time in churches of various stages. I've seen this in, in church plants where a man has been called by God to do a specific mission. He has limited resources, um, limited people to help him. And he grabs a guy and says, hey, I need you to oversee a certain area of ministry. And that guy, because he looks around and assumes that he's the only other leader around, assumes then that he should have authority over all aspects of the church. And when, when the leader does something without informing that guy or without consulting that guy, he gets upset because he thinks the leader's taking too much power. And so he starts emailing and texting and Facebooking all the other members of the church, drumming up um, you know, a controversy that was never really there because he wasn't satisfied with what was being told. It's destructive. Ultimately, he ends up hijacking a church And he thinks he's saving it from a threat that's not even really there. God's called the man to do something. The church will be planted. The church will grow. And God will be glorified in it. In more um, established churches, dare I say churches kind of in in our stage or or, or age, the challenge happens when, when people are so prideful because they've either been there for a while, maybe they have some education, maybe they have uh, some status or they've served in churches before, And so um, all of a sudden, they're not willing to serve in areas that they may seem are beneath them. Oh, I've already done my time in Kids Road. I've already done my time with roadies. Or I have a degree, um, you know, so I should be teaching um, really old, smart people, not really young, soon-to-be smart people, right? And And it's challenging because... We've even had men come in who, who have said, hey, I want to be part of your church. I want to serve because I love God and I love the mission. And it comes to find out that really what they want is a vocation. They want a job. They're waiting for a paycheck, hoping that the church will somehow fulfill some sort of identity crisis they've had or fulfill some sort of career uh, need that they have. And so it's not a desire for God's glory and God's mission to humbly serve, but it's a desire for their own pride and their own identity. And sadly, this is crippling when it happens in older uh, and, and dying churches. I, I've seen this as well, and it, it, it makes me very upset. I hope it makes you upset too. But um, when you see people who are maybe have, were founding members or people who are financially blessed, and so they're big givers, and so they take over a church and act as a de facto elder board and say, no, I only like things the way they used to be, I'm not interested with with your blue jeans and your rock and roll music, right? 
and, and they say, no, I'm not going to let those changes happen. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and anything you've done in the last 30 years, I'm going to roll it back because I have a vision of past glory, which was usually when they were probably my age. And, and they have this, this vision that I'm going to restore the church to its former glory that maybe was never even there. And what happens is a church that's gone on mission, a church that's hoping to honor God and engage with the people around them, is, is now a church that's only looking in the past and trying to appease a couple of, of wealthy or influential people. Pride, individual and corporately, will kill a church and end the effectiveness of its witness for the gospel. All right, we see here as well that this isn't just for them, it's for us. So I want to be very clear and very specific. Where has your pride kept you from serving faithfully the mission of God or kept you from being unified with God's people? Ask yourself that. You might be scared of the answer, but I hope it leads you to a place of humility that wants you to serve the mission, that wants you to be in unity with God's people. Tell you what it looks like for us as pastors. And, and we, we fight against this, we pray against this, and we repent. But it's, wow, there's a new church plan in town. Why? We already got a church here. We're, we're doing this. What are they going to do? Or, whoa, you know, we're, we're 300, that church is 600, or that church is 1,000. They're broadcasting, you know, over the internet, or they're, they're having a bunch of, of baptism. What, what's, what's going on? Because our, our pride gets hurt, and we forget that we're on a mission that God's called us to. And when others are successful at that same mission, it's to God's glory and the joy of those people that are being saved. We fight against that. So the way Gideon addresses this is interesting because he doesn't call it sin. He doesn't call these guys out on their pride. In fact, if anything, he kind of appeases them. He strokes their pride a little bit and says, oh, but you're so much more wealthy than I am. You killing these two princes is so much better than the 120,000 guys we slayed. Okay? He just strokes their pride. And so they're puffed up. They're satisfied. All right. You're right. I am the man. Ephraim leaves. The challenge with that, like I said, if pride isn't addressed, it goes very badly down the road. In the fall, when we get to the second part of Judges, we'll see in chapter 12 that the same tribe stands up against the leader of Israel with the same complaint. You didn't consult me. You didn't bring me in on the planning process of this. And they're so prideful, so emboldened with their pride that the only way they can be dealt with is for half their tribe to be wiped out. It ends badly. Episode 1. Let's go to episode 2. Zealous fear, verses 4 through 9. And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the 300 men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing what being on mission is. So he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I'm pursuing after Ziba and Zelmunna, the kings of Midian. And the officials of Succoth said, are the hands of Ziba and Zelmunna already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, well then, when the Lord has given Ziba and Zelmunna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. And from there, he went up to Penuel, and he spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Penuel answered him, as the men of Sukkoth had answered, and said to the men of Penuel, when I come again in peace, I will break down this tower, the center of their city. All right, episode two. 
So we've got Ephraim quieted for a while. So Gideon and his 300 men are back at the mission at hand. They've crossed the Jordan, exhausted yet pursuing. Like I said, that is what a life following Christ leads you to. And they're pursuing the kings of Midian and the remaining 15,000 men that, that still need to be killed. And they come to these two towns and they say, we need bread. We just need some food. We need some tangible support here to keep going on the mission. I want to be clear. They're not asking for these men to leave their village, to come fight on the front lines, to grab a sword, to do anything dangerous at all. They're just saying, support the people who are risking their lives to ultimately deliver these same cities from oppression. Just help us help you. And they deny it. They deny the request on the grounds that Gideon hasn't achieved total victory. They've heard about the 100,000 people slain with torches and trumpets. But, you know, you haven't done it all. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm still in a wait-and-see mode on whether I'm going to participate with what God's doing here. And in some sense, you can understand their reluctance. To put it in context, um, they are a border town. They are the first two towns living near the Midianite hordes that every year when Midian's coming to go on their annual pillaging tour of Israel, these are the first two towns hit. So for seven years, the people, the men of this town, have tried to build up defenses and purge their cities of this insidious, evil, devouring tribe of people. They are weary. You need to to think of them like El Paso and Laredo, Texas, who right now, for a decade, have had the Mexican drugs cartels just running roughshod over them back and forth. They're scared. They are fearful because they've seen their city They've seen people in their city be murdered, kidnapped, dead, their resources taken. They are terrified. And so, in their eyes, they're being prudent. We're going to wait and see how this plays out because we don't want to upset the cartels if you guys aren't successful because we're going to have to live with the consequences. And in reality, their prudence is faithlessness. They have been an oppression for so long that they're distrusting what God has already said he would accomplish through Gideon that they become comfortable in their oppression. They become comfortable living in sin. They become comfortable distrusting God. And so they have more confidence, more comfort with certain oppression. Gideon fails, they're still going to get oppressed by Midian. They'd rather have the certain oppression than face the possibility of freedom that they've never experienced. They'd rather have sin and oppression than freedom, because freedom's scary because they haven't had it yet. And so they end up fearing a nearly defeated, disjointed army that's running away from them then they actually are placing trust in the God who's actively defeating that army. So the application for us, the question for us, is what major or consistent areas of sin or oppression are you failing to address because you're more comfortable with the sin you know than the freedom you've yet to experience? 
What are you holding on to? What are you failing to fight? Because you're afraid if you actually fight that sin, it might be difficult. And if you've had some victory over sin by God's grace, you've been granted some repentance, but you're ineffective in supporting the mission of God to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, what are you waiting for? What future point are you hoping to have more victory than you do today to actually serve and reach others for Christ? What is holding you back? What's keeping you from becoming a member? What's keeping you from giving? What's keeping you from serving? What's keeping you from reaching out to your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers with the announcement of the victory? Submit to you, it's fear. It's faithless. See, with a major battle to be won, these cities would rather be zealous in their own fear than zealous in participating in an amazing victory. So, ironically, these guys are trembling on the sidelines because they're afraid of what might happen to them. They might get retribution from Midian. We'll see here in episode three, they end up feeling the wrath of Gideon instead. They get the same consequences they were afraid of. All right, episode three, zealous revenge. Go 10 through 21. Now Ziba and Zelmuna were in Kakur with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers east of Nobagah and Jobahah and attacked the army, for the army felt secure. Some pride for you. And Ziba and Zelmuna fled and pursued them. And he captured the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zelmuna, and he threw all the army into panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle by the ascent of Harry's. And he captured a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. And he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zelmuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zelmuna already in your hand that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city. He took thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson. And he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Wow. Then he said to Ziba and Zelmuna, Where are the men whom you killed at Tabor? They answered, As you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Ziba and Zelmuna said, rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength. And Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zelmuna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of their camels. All right, part three. So despite the zealous pride of Ephraim, despite the zealous fear of uh, Sukkoth and Penuel um, that just served to destroy the cohesion of God's people, God, through Gideon, still accomplished what he promised he would back in chapter six, and he's wiped out the Midianites. God is still faithful. And so the battle is over, 
Israel is delivered from oppression. This should be a great celebration scene. The movie should be over at this point, right? But instead, things get dark very quickly as we see Gideon get zealous for revenge. So like I said, the battle's over. And even before Gideon deals with the kings of Midian, he goes back to the towns and turns his attention to settle the score with these men. And as I thought about this, um, it reminded me of, of Braveheart. And just so you know, Christian pastors are required to mention Braveheart at least once a year. So I'm getting mine in now. Um, but there's the, the scene in the middle of Braveheart where, where um, the Scottish tribes are united and they're going to go against the evil English, right? And, and Braveheart leads his men out and he looks behind him and sees none of the leaders of the other tribes are with him. And when the battle's over, what does Braveheart do? Goes on a 10-minute rampage going through each of their homes and murdering them for revenge for not standing up and fighting when they were supposed to. This is what Gideon's doing. When you think of Gideon here, think of Mel Gibson's mugshot, okay? He's a little crazy right now. He's mad. And rightly so. He tells the men of Sukkoth, you taunted me. You are in absolute opposition to God's victory here, and now you're getting what you deserve. But he's still zealously pursuing revenge. In, in no way is he coming to his brothers seeking reconciliation. He's not, um, he's not seeking justice. He just wants revenge. He wants to teach them a lesson. It's brutal. What they did was wrong and sinful and stupid. But how Gideon responds is not in a Christ-like attitude by any stretch. Gideon wants to humiliate them. And so we've seen now this man that God raised up to deliver his people and fight against Baal and fight against Midian is now fighting God's people. And it just shows us how broken and fragmented the relationships are with God's people. All is, all is not well. And this is here in Judges, the first time we see Israelite on Israelite violence. They're not fighting an outside enemy, they're fighting each other. And sadly, this pattern continues all the way through the rest of the book of Judges as God's people become more and more fragmented by sin. So, He's, he's dealt with, you know, the, uh, the Scottish tribes. We're now ready for the sequel. He says, this time it's personal. He grabs the kings. And in my mind, this is happening in an uh, abandoned warehouse, right? Um, there's no lights in the warehouse except one. It's hanging over the chairs of these two kings. And he starts interrogating them. And he's like, where are my peeps? What happened to my boys? They said, oh, well. We killed him. And in his interrogation, the only thing he cares about, or says he cares about, is how these men hurt his family. When these are the kings who have orchestrated the oppression of God's people for seven years. They've decimated thousands and thousands of people. And he's making it about him. He's saying it's not about what you've done to God and his people. It's about how you've wronged me. He's taking offense instead of being concerned with how these men uh, dealt with God. And so 
I mean, he even says, I'd spare you if you hadn't hurt my family. Really? God had ordered these people to be wiped out. He would have been faithful to God if he had done that. And so, like, in most movies where there's a guy trapped in a, in a warehouse, the ringleader says, all right, henchmen, you go kill these guys. I'm leaving. Right? Only this time the henchman happens to be his young son. But what happens in every movie where a henchman's called to kill the guys? Fails. Can't do it. So what do, what do the kings do to Gideon? They challenge his manhood. And the only thing that makes Gideon faithful in doing what he's supposed to do and end these guys and punish them for what they've done is because they personally insulted his manhood. Again, he cares about himself. He cares about revenge, not being faithful to God's call. All right. Part three's in the books. Let's go part four. Fourth quarter. Here we go. Maybe overtime too. We'll see. Verses 22 through 35. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hands of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you. And my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, "Uh, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of their camel. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, in Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So... Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Now Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. That's Gideon. Now Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, at Ophrah of the Abzerites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God, who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good he had done. Israel. All right. So we've seen the people zealously fail to worship God who delivered them from oppression and instead they decide to worship the servant that God decided to work through. Even though that guy by this point's gotten pretty dark. And this worship of man started back subtly in chapter 7 when the 300 are getting ready for their campaign, and they all shout out together, for the Lord and for Gideon. Putting Gideon up with God. And by the end of the campaign, they're ready to make Gideon king. They're ready to make his family a dynasty. And so, they're ready to give him, and not God, all the credit for the victory. 
And I think we look back on, on these people as, as foolish, but the reality is we're not much different. Especially the church here in America, we make this mistake all the time. We have to be careful as Christians to not confuse where power, where truth, and where salvation comes from. Because we often make idols out of celebrity pastors and authors and podcasters and bloggers. And we say, well, no, they're doing stuff for God. I, I want to follow them. I want to learn from them. They're the ones who have who've done some amazing things in my life. And I want to be clear. I don't want to say we don't appreciate the things that people have done for us. Even people who maybe have personally poured into us. We start to idolize a little bit because they've helped us through some trials or helped us grow in Christ. For me personally, as I consider the, the core values of our church, of gospel truth, gospel community, and gospel living, I think about how God has used specific men at specific times to help um, stir in me an understanding for those. Early on, uh, as I came back to the church, it was, it was Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church that gave me a fire and a passion for gospel truth because I'd never heard the Bible preached like that before. It made me want to know God's word more and to teach God's word. I met my bride there, and we get married, and we go to Texas, and we go to Providence Community Church, and, and Mark Moore, uh, a pastor there, and, and, and um, uh, James Martin, a pastor there, taught me what it meant to be in a gospel community where people know you and love you and help you grow in Christ while still affirming the power of God's truth. Then we moved back from there and we came here to Damascus Road and Sam Ford helped take gospel truth and gospel community and empowered me to live a life of gospel living on mission for the gospel. I love what God did through those men for me and I appreciate each of those men they did that, and by God's grace, all of them have remained faithful, and I'm, and I'm thankful for that. But what happens sometimes is we turn these people that have done great things in our lives into idols, and we begin to rely on their faithfulness over the faithfulness of God. The problem with that is, is every single time we will be disappointed because these men are not God. So the people have failed. They're still turning their attention to an instrument of God as worship instead of God himself. And even the most perfect instrument of God uh, will fail. And we see here that Gideon, for all, he was, all the good he was able to accomplish for the people, he's going to fail the people in a big way because he responds to success um, and the people's call to make him king in a very bad way. He starts out good says here that, um, he, he says, uh, you know, hey, no, I'm not going to be your king. God's going to be your king. All right, yes and amen, I'm with you. But then the practice of his life doesn't match up to his theology. Quite simply put, Gideon is a hypocrite. Okay? You guys ever met one before? Okay. You can talk to yourself if you wanted to uh, as well on that. And so his, his actions betray his true heart. He begins this collection of all the gold, just like Aaron, Moses' brother, had done out in the desert. And where Aaron had made this golden calf that all the people worshipped around. Now Gideon's too smart for that. Because the golden calf, let's just be honest, that's a little silly. 
right? Instead, he makes an ephod. Now, you might not know what an ephod is. If you'd like to, to get some in-depth teaching on it, you can go to the worst sermon I ever preached, which was three years ago today. Um, it was uh, two full chapters in Exodus assigned to me by Sam, so it's his fault. Um, and uh, I think the sermon ended about 20 minutes ago. Uh, it was really long. And um, uh, anyway, we get, went into detail about what the ephod was. But essentially, um, it's a golden apron that the high priest would wear. It's kind of a uniform piece to say, I- I'm your primary connection between man and God. So Gideon says, no, I don't want to be king. You mind making me high priest? Like, yeah, no problem. Whatever you want, bro. So they, they, they melt down this ephod. And, and what's dangerous about that is because a golden calf is silly. But an ephod, well, that's just what we already do. It's dangerous because it looks closer to pure worship. Because it doesn't look that wrong. And this is honestly where pastors uh, and churches usually become astray. It would be really weird if next week we just said, hey, we've changed our doctrine and we now worship the flying spaghetti monster. So you guys still on board with that? All right, let's move on. You know, you you all would say that's a little nuts and you'd, you'd hopefully leave. No, it's the subtle changes, the little changes. Like I said, they seem right because they don't seem that wrong. So what they're doing here is something that, like I said, resembles pure worship. And the problem is, is that it actually ends up becoming idolatry. At the end, lots of little changes and compromises creates a big shift that takes the leader and the people away from faithfully pursuing God. And it even says that people are worshiping falsely at a new place. You have to know, if if you're not a Christian, we don't worship people, we don't worship places, we don't worship things. We worship a man who is God named Jesus. So we don't make pilgrimages, we don't come to special places. This is just a hardware store, an old pharmacy, okay? We just gather here to hear about Jesus because that's who we worship. And we see that this cult of celebrity that Israel has, has built up around the Gideon family ends up becoming a snare for them. Gideon starts his ministry tearing down his father's idols, and now he's building up his own. And there's terrible consequences for the whole family. So, in addition to asking to be high priest, Gideon starts to act like a king says here he takes numerous wives. And if his, if his numerous wives aren't enough, he's got to have a gal on the side for his vacation home back in Shechem. Right? He has a whole bunch of sons. I got four daughters. Uh, soon to have four daughters. I wouldn't mind have a couple more sons. Um, but he takes, has all these sons, and then what they believe is probably his last son, who is with his, like I said, gal on the side, the concubine. He names... That son, Abimelech. And if that doesn't betray his narcissism and how he views himself, you need to know that Abimelech translates into, my father is king. Right? That's pretty dang clear. If I name one of my sons, dad is awesome, you're pretty prideful. Okay? You could say, no, no, I'm, hum- I'm very, you know, I have a lot of humility. You know, some of you guys do the junior route. That's great. I got vetoed on that one by God's grace through Tara. Um, but, yeah, name, my father's king. And we'll get to chapter 9 next week, and it, 
it gets even darker. This kid's a bad, bad kid. So there's no question that Gideon ends in zealous failure. When I think about what the application for us is, when we think about these pastors or these leaders who we put so much faith in and so much stock in, when they ultimately fail us, it can be destructive. I'm sure, sadly, almost each of us has our stories and our experiences of pastors and leaders who have hurt us or hurt our church or hurt those around us. For my family, it was the pastor of the church I went to growing up. I've told many of you this before, that after 30 years of faithful ministry, his ministry ended when he decided to have an adulterous relationship with a gal who was as old as his oldest daughter. Ended badly. And it hurts. Because what it does for us is we look back at all those years we were involved in those ministries and we ask ourselves, did God do anything during that time? Was it all just a mistake or mirage? Was it all all just a lie? Don't. Don't question what God did. Just because men fail, just because leaders fail, doesn't mean God didn't do something amazing. It doesn't take away the vitality of what those men's ministries did. My father and my sister were baptized by that man. Their baptisms are valid because the power behind their baptism is in Christ, not in that man. But we question it. We wonder if God didn't accomplish something. And so when we look at at Gideon and his idolatry and his hypocrisy, did God do anything during this time? Well, by God's grace, it says yes. In verse 28, it says the land had 40 years of rest. Don't underscore that. For seven years, these people have been in brutal oppression, and they get four decades of, oh, this is better. The challenge is, though, because Gideon was the one that did the delivering through God, it's insufficient. It didn't lead to peace. God granted them rest even when it says Gideon was a hypocrite and the people were idolaters. Don't mistake God giving you rest or comfort. It's the same thing as peace, that everything's okay. Because the reality is each one of us has sin in our lives and sometimes God by his grace and mercy doesn't let us experience the immediate consequences of our sin. So we lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves everything's okay with us and God. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. God's giving us rest and comfort from our sin for a brief period of time because he's inviting us to something greater, to lasting peace, to lasting joy, to lasting life that comes from him. He's given us a little Costco-sized sample of it. He says, buy the whole bag of chicken. Right? And so Paul says it this way. We'll go with Paul's words instead of mine. Uh, Romans 2 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you are in active sin right now, but life's still pretty good, you can still repent. You can still turn from a life of zealously pursuing your own sin and start pursuing a faithful and just God. 
And if you're suffering the consequences of your sin, understand that there's relief. That you may still have worldly consequences, but you don't have eternal condemnation if you put your faith in Christ because He's the one that gets up on the cross and does the work for you and takes the punishment for you, takes the consequences for you, and instead grants you His righteousness so that you can have life. So at the end of Gideon's legacy, at the end of, as we look back now at all of Gideon, we can see that Gideon's legacy amongst his people is really no legacy at all. God's people are just as bad and just as idolatrous after Gideon as they were before. And so I don't want to denigrate all the good that Gideon had done. I mean, the guy still made it in the Bible, so he's still a pretty good dude, right? None of us did. They still say Gideon's, you know, in, in, the, in the, uh, you know, the hall of faith, right? But Gideon's deliverance for his people was incomplete and insufficient to fully restore God's people into peaceful relationship and pure worship of God. So this is why we look at guys like Gideon as just shadows at best of the true Savior and Deliverer. So as Christians, we don't look to these guys in the Old Testament as heroes. We, we don't look at them as examples of faithfulness because the reality are these guys aren't heroes at all. They're just sinful, broken people like you and me that God has just happened to do some amazing things through. And that should give us some hope that if God's using people like Gideon, God can use people like us. And it's for our grace and for his joy and so, for us, when we're seeking for some sort of revival or some sort of inspiration, we don't say, be like Gideon. We don't, we don't wait for the next big worship experience to say, God did something. We don't go to a, a war memorial to say, look at what God did. We, we don't look at the next podcast or the next sermon or the next revival, the next conference to try to remind us of some temporary hope and comfort God gave us. As Christians, we look to God himself in Christ Jesus to see everything that he did for his people is for everlasting peace and joy and victory. We look to Christ. And where Gideon failed to secure final salvation and victory, Jesus gets up on the cross. And for his people, he says, That should give us confidence. It should give us hope that, that we don't have to worry about finishing well like Gideon because he didn't because we look to Christ because he's the one that does the work in our hearts. Paul says it this way in Philippians 1.6. This is a, it should be a life verse for you on good days and in bad. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We don't have to worry about finishing well because we've, known, we've been granted grace for our failures. And we've been granted the gift of repentance to actually turn and follow Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when we get to our last day, we don't look back at no legacy. We look forward to God saying, well done, good and faithful servant, because of what Christ has done through us. And so our remembrance of Christ's work that we're going to do today 
is not ornate or golden like an ephod. It's very simple. It's a little piece of bread, a little bit of wine or juice. It's communion. Where we come before God not to show our faithfulness to the Lord, but be reminded that He was faithful to us to shed His blood and have His body broken on the cross on our behalf. And so we come before God and we come to communion in humility, not pride, because we acknowledge our total reliance on God for our provision, for our salvation, and for our joy. We also come forward and we give at this time our tithes and our offerings. And in doing so, we're not stingy or waiting to see how things go like Sukkoth and Penuel. But we're generous and we give, we give faithfully and we give cheerfully for the victory that God has already achieved on our behalf. And the band comes up and we sing. And we sing songs not to a hero, not to a leader, not to a high priest, but to our Father, King in heaven, whose legacy is not in question, but whose legacy and victory are assured from now until eternity. That's the grace of God we have.